Welcome to the History Raid Podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Kovach. Today's topic, the Wu Chang Uprising, Wuhan's other claim to fame. As you may be aware, we are currently experiencing a bit of disruption in our lives, thanks to COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. While not in common use at the moment, it is possible that when the books are written about the current outbreak, a third name may be utilised, the Wuhan virus. The mere fact this name exists has already turned into a fractious political issue thanks to current back-and-forth politicking between China and the US over this virus. The Trump administration is currently actively pushing for the use of the term Wuhan virus when discussing the current outbreak, which has seemingly inspired a tit-for-tat move on the part of Beijing to give its state-controlled media the go-ahead to begin spreading conspiracy theories about COVID-19 being a US bioweapon. Regardless of this ongoing Mean Girls level of political theatre, it is at the moment broadly accepted that the initial outbreak, patient zero if you will, was in the Chinese city of Wuhan, in in central China, and there does exist a precedent for naming diseases after the place of origin. The Marburg virus, for example, while believed to have originated in Ugandan chimpanzees, was first officially recorded and received its name from the German town of Marburg. Should the term Wuhan virus catch on, I feel it would be rather unfortunate if the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak becomes the singular defining event in that city's history, given that in October 1911, one of the most significant events in Chinese history, and by extension and effect, world history, took place in the modern-day Wuchang district of Wuhan, the Wuchang Uprising. The China of 1911 was in the process of painfully slogging through a period referred to by modern Chinese historians as the Century of Humiliation. This 110-year period, not a century I know, just run with it, began with the 1839-1842 First Opium War between China and Great Britain. Before this war, China and its ruling Qing dynasty held on to the traditional Middle Kingdom view of themselves and the world, that China was, and always would be, the absolute best thing ever, and that the rest of the world's nations were a collection of barbarians, either beneath their notice, or earmarked for taking down a peg or two. This myth of supremacy was brutally shattered in 1842, when a force of 19,000 tea-loving, gun-toting barbarians and their 37 ships seized control of several key areas of China, holding the whole empire to ransom, a ransom the Qing would have no choice but to pay, in humiliating fashion, in the 1842 Treaty of Nanking. This defeat was seen as a declaration of open season on the once mighty empire, with the great powers of Europe, the United States, and eventually the newly ascendant Empire of Japan taking turns brutalizing and biting chunks out of China. Like their Japanese cousins, the Chinese did try and modernize their economy and military 
to resist further attempts to exploit them, and saw some success, but the incompetent, corrupt, and deeply conservative ruling dynasty hamstrung these efforts. It reached the point that many regions of China would begin to completely disregard the imperial administration in Beijing, with local strongmen seizing de facto power away from the central government. In this time of crisis, the ruling Qing dynasty needed a ruler of exceptional talent that the Chinese people could rally behind, and who could effectively respond to foreign encroachment. Instead, 1908 saw the Empress Dowager Shishi, who had presided over some of the worst disasters of the Century of Humiliation, die, passing the dragon throne onto Emperor Puyi, a two-year-old child. Unsurprisingly, the fact that their new Lord of 10,000 years had only recently fully grasped object permanence did little to inspire public confidence in the now severely wobbly Qing dynasty. A number of Chinese revolutionaries now stood ready and eager to give a final solid shove to this precarious Jenga tower of a dynasty, the most famous of whom was a former doctor by the name of Sun Yat-sen. Sun had been a professional revolutionary since 1888, determined to overthrow the Qing dynasty and repair China's divided and traumatized society through his three principles of nationalism, democracy, and livelihood. To this end, he organized no less than five uprisings, all of whom were either fatally mismanaged or crushed by Qing loyalists. 1911 saw Sun Yat-sen in exile in the United States, trying to win money and support for the Republic of China he envisioned. Back in China, tensions were about to boil over in the central Chinese province of Hebei. The Qing court had given an order in 1910 that recently constructed railways across southern and central China would be nationalized to bring them under their direct control. The people of southern and central China regarded these nationalizations as theft on the part of the Qing government. Resulting protests against these seizures were met by mass arrests and the shooting of protesters. At the beginning of October 1911, sensing that the public mood was ripe for a revolution, two revolutionary groups in the Wuhan area, the Literary Society and the Progressive Association, made contact with members of Sun Yat-sen's own revolutionary group, the Chinese United League, to plan an uprising in Wuchang. On the 9th of October, during preparations for the uprising, the leader of the Progressive Association, Sun Wu, was badly injured while supervising the production of explosives for the uprising. When he was hospitalized, the hospital staff recognized him as a known revolutionary and warned the Qing authorities in Hebei province of an imminent uprising. Their arrests imminent, the revolutionaries launched their uprising ahead of schedule on the 10th of October. Around 2,000 revolutionaries captured the residence of the Qing Viceroy and several other key points around Wuchang, following an evening of intense fighting. The numerically superior Qing garrison of the city, taken off guard by the ferocity of the uprising and left leaderless by the hasty flight of the Qing Viceroy from the city, abandoned Wuchang. On the 11th of October, the revolutionaries established a military government in Wuchang and sent out telegrams to other provinces urging them to follow their lead in casting off the rule of the Qing. Sun only learned about the events in Wuchang from an American newspaper the day after the initial uprising 
and immediately made haste back to China. By the time Sun arrived back in China, most of southern and central China had followed Wu Chang's example, formally splitting from the Qing. The Qing army was unable to put down the revolution, and on the 29th of December 1911, Sun Yat-sen was chosen by an assembly of provincial representatives in the city of Nanjing as the first president of the new Republic of China. President Sun faced two immediate problems. Much of northern China, the traditional heartlands of the Qing, remained under their control. Also, the Beiyang army, the best equipped and trained army in China, remained loyal to the Qing. President Sun's solution to these problems was to strike a deal. A deal that in time would inflict a near-fatal blow to his new republic. Sun promised the presidency of China to the leader of the Beiyang army, General Yuan Shikai, in return for his army overthrowing the Emperor Puyi. Yuan agreed, and by late 1912, Emperor Puyi was under palace arrest in Beijing, and President Yuan led the, theoretically, reunified China. After China's first national election in January 1913, Sun Yat-sen's new political party, the straightforwardly titled Chinese Nationalist Party, began looking towards turning Sun's three principles of nationalism, democracy and livelihood into policies that would heal the deep wounds in Chinese society. President Yuan, who was never particularly keen on the idea of democracy, saw the Nationalist Party as a threat to his authority, starting a crackdown against them. Sun Yat-sen was forced to flee China in August 1913, after a failed attempt to overthrow Yuan. January 1914 saw the Chinese parliament dissolved, turning President Yuan into a military dictator. While he was a talented soldier, Yuan proved to be a hopeless politician allowing corruption to run rampant, and the generals that governed the Chinese provinces to operate as semi-independent mini-dictators, exploiting the local populace and making the governance of China a disorganised mess. The already low public opinion of Yuan worsened significantly in January 1915, when Yuan caved in to 21 extraordinary demands by Japan, which, without the intervention, of several Western powers would have greatly expanded the already invasive influence Japan enjoyed in northern China. Yuan's response to his country falling down around his ears was to declare himself Emperor of China on the 20th of November 1915, reasoning that a return to imperial rule would somehow reassure the rest of the population, and that his newfound imperial grandeur would impress foreign powers enough that they would give him diplomatic and economic support. Instead, after a glorious reign of 83 days, Yuan abdicated the throne and returned to simply being the president of a country now on the brink of full-scale anarchy and civil war. Yuan's death from Uremia on the 6th of June 1916 ended any pretense of a unified China, and the country collapsed into dozens of independent territories ruled over by warlords. Sun Yat-sen returned to China in 1917 and would spend the remaining eight years of his life starting the process of slowly piecing China back together. Following his death 
in March 1925, his protégé, Chiang Kai-shek, continued his work, becoming de facto president of the, mostly, reunified Republic of China on October 1928. China would have to endure two brutal existential conflicts, first against the Empire of Japan, and then a civil war between Chiang Kai-shek and China's latest breed of revolutionaries, the Chinese Communist Party under Mao Zedong, before China could once again claim to be a true independent power on the international stage, as laid out in the proclamation of the People's Republic of China in October 1949, a date which formally ended in the minds of Chinese historians China's century of humiliation. Despite the radical shift Chinese communism took away from the ideas of Sun Yat-sen and the Wuchang revolutionaries, Wuhan continues to be regarded as a place of great historical significance for Chinese history. It is the place with a starting gun for China's grueling dash through the last 38 years of China's century of, of humiliation was fired. While not as grand as Mao's towering portrait in Tiananmen Square, a statue of Sun Yat-sen still stands proudly, flanked by 18 star flags of the Republic of China, in front of the former residence of the Qing Viceroy, the Wuhan revolutionaries ousted on the 11th of October 1911. While marred by horrors beyond count, it is worth remembering the remarkable progress China has made in the 109 years since the Wuchang Uprising, and that no matter how much the current pandemic blights the historical record of Wuhan, Wuhan's legacy as the place where modern China began to take shape deserves to be remembered. Thank you for listening. I hope you will continue to tune in during the interesting times ahead for us for more Raids into History.